WNYV Whitehall Glens Falls. It's eight o'clock. Good morning. This is Northern Light for Tuesday, December 5th. I'm Monica Sandreski. And I'm Todd Moe. Residents in a small Essex County hamlet are dealing with a fungus growing on their homes. We talk with Adirondack Explorer reporter Gwendolyn Craig, who's covering the issue. And we found from, you know, talking to the State Department of Health, they don't feel there is a public health concern here. From what we're, our reporting shows, there isn't a lot of the same kind of concern as like black mold, for example. A new book details the black history of St. Lawrence County from before the Revolutionary War to the 1930s. Brian Thompson was moved to write the book after a talk with his son's teacher. I asked about what black history my son had learned, and the response is that he was absent the one day we talked about black history. And that sort of set my ears on edge. And we'll talk with Helen DeMong, director of the annual Northern Lights Choir's Winter Concert in Saranac Lake. This year's theme is Going Home. One of our very first songs is The Road Home. It captures the love, loss, hope, and support that we encounter as we have our life journey. All of that and more is coming up on Northern Light. Stick with us. Broadcast of Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio is supported by Long Run Wealth, an SEC-registered investment advisor in Lake Placid, providing comprehensive wealth management, retirement, and financial planning solutions, longrunwealth.com, and Fisher, Bassett, Muldowney, and McArdle, attorneys and counselors at law with offices in Malone, Tupper Lake, and Saranac Lake, 800-941-5001. This is Northern Light. I'm Monica Sandreski. And I'm Todd Moe. A sticky black substance is showing up on people's houses in the small Adirondack hamlet of Mineville near Plattsburgh. Residents suspect it comes from a nearby whiskey storage warehouse owned by the Vermont company Whistlepig. It's the first such case recorded in New York State. Gwendolyn Craig has been investigating for the Adirondack Explorer, and she spoke with Anna Williams-Bergen. So whiskey fungus is um, something I'd never heard of until I wrote the story, first of all. Uh, it's a fungus that feeds off of ethanol vapor, and so it really only tends to show up around communities that have a sort of distillery business or bakeries, um, anything that's kind of has an ethanol a vapor coming off of it. And Whistlepig whiskey is actually there. They distill their whiskey in Vermont. They bring it over to Mineville where they put it in barrels and they have it aging there for, you know, five to 15 years or whatnot. Residents are starting to see just in the last few years, um, this sort of black sheen that's been cropping up on their siding and on their roofs. And um, they're suspecting that it's whiskey fungus. Now we only have uh, the state confirming uh, one of the tests and the other tests we're kind of still waiting on. And so what has the company's response been to all of this? 
I did not hear back from them on a couple of my initial inquiries. Uh, we, we visited Mineville, we visited residents, and we, you know, knocked on the door at Whistlepig and we're told they did not want to comment at this time. And I got an email a couple of days later from um, an operations director who said, you know, yes, uh, we are aware of whiskey fungus. It does happen, um, but we're not responsible for all of this uh, that some of the neighbors are complaining about. And they do clean houses, they said, on a case-by-case basis. Um, We've only heard of the hospice building next door getting cleaned by Whistlepig. Um, A couple of the residents we spoke to said, you know, they'd gone up to the company and asked them to clean their home. And they either said yes or maybe um, and had not uh, come back to actually do that. So we're not clear on what their exact policy is. I, I asked for that, and it's a little unclear how they determine this case-by-case basis part. So you spoke with a bunch of residents of Mineville uh, as part of your reporting. Could you talk to me a little bit about you know what they were saying to you, what their concerns were, but also what they were hoping for going forward from Whistlepig and from local officials and local government? So the residents... A lot of them are the ones we spoke to are retired. Um, they're older. They've lived there for decades. They're just seeing this. I called it like a five o'clock shadow, basically growing on their homes. And um, they're just very distressed about that. They're proud of where they live. They um, want their house to look nice. And it's it's looking, you know, very dirty. There's a concern about the health impacts of this. And we found from you know, talking to the State Department of Health, they don't feel there is a public health concern here. From what we're, our reporting shows, there isn't a lot of the same kind of concern as like black mold, for example. But it is it is discouraging for them. They'd really like to see the company just clean their home once in a while. But, you know, there's, there just sort of seems to be a disconnect here as to how, how this will, you know, be remedied going forward. Gwendolyn Craig is a reporter for the Adirondack Explorer. You can find a link to her reporting on our website, ncpr.org. She spoke with Anna Williams-Bergen. Another upstate New York college is closing its doors. The College of St. Rose in Albany confirmed Friday that it will close next spring. Trustees said the college has an $11 million deficit and doesn't have enough cash to operate next year. In an event closed to the press Friday, College President Marsha White told members of the campus community she's heartbroken for the loss of the 103-year-old college. She spoke with reporters soon after. Unfortunately, at this point, There was not a partnership that was able to allow us to either merge or affiliate at this point so that we could continue on. The college blamed declining enrollment and the pandemic for its financial woes. It says it will help students with a teach-out plan and work with faculty and staff who will lose their jobs. Madai University in Buffalo and Casanova College near Syracuse also closed last year, uh, also closed this year. Some North Country colleges, while nowhere near closing, are struggling financially, including Clarkson and St. Lawrence Universities. SUNY Potsdam is shedding nine-degree programs to cut a $9 million annual deficit. 
New York is giving out $40 million in funding to food organizations across the state, including two Adirondack groups. The Essex Food Hub got over $730,000. That money will help them buy food from local farms and redistribute it for free to underserved people in the western Adirondacks and the Bronx. ADK Action also received over $200,000 for Fair Share, a program that gives local farm shares for free to low-income families in the Adirondacks. The New York Food for New York Families program is funded by a USDA grant with the goal of improving access to local food. And a dispute between Ogdensburg and its firefighters cost the city almost $100,000 in lawyer's fees. That's according to the Watertown Daily Times. The conflict started in December of 2020 when the Ogdensburg City Council passed a new budget, cutting seven fire department positions. The firefighters union said it violated their agreement. The ensuing legal battle lasted nearly three years. It finally ended last October when the city agreed to pay the firefighters more than half a million dollars in back pay, including including nearly $25,000 in interest. The lengthy dispute included arbitration and multiple appeals, including to the state Supreme Court. Listening to Northern Light right here on North Country Public Radio. It's nine minutes past eight. Good morning. I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandreski. Just ahead, Northern Lights Choir celebrates 10 years of choral music in its annual holiday concert this Friday night in Saranac Lake. We'll hear a conversation with the director of the choir coming up in just a few minutes here on Northern Light. Music by Matthew Johnson out of Sackett's Harbor. Broadcast of Northern Light is supported by Adirondack Foundation, making grants to nonprofits that address community issues of child care, attainable housing, career pathways, basic needs, and more. Adirondackfoundation.org and the Alzheimer's Disease Caregiver Support Initiative, offering Hope with Project Lifesaver, a search and recovery program that uses technology to find seniors who wander. Details at wehelpcaregivers.com. And before the end of the month, Take a moment to help keep NCPR strong in 2024 with a year-end gift. You can give at ncpr.org slash give. Thank you. It's hard to find out about the black history of St. Lawrence County, but a new book brings that history into the mainstream. It details the lives of black people in the region from before the Revolutionary War to the 1930s when white supremacists drove most of the black community out. Catherine Wheeler spoke with the historian who spent 20 years putting together the stories of the region's black pioneers. 
Brian Thompson says his interest in St. Lawrence County's Black history started with his children's education. I am the adoptive parent of two Black children. And when my son was in fourth grade, in fourth grade, they're supposed to learn state and local history. And in the conference with his teacher near the end of the year, I asked about what black history my son had learned. And the response is that he was absent the one day we talked about black history. And that sort of set my ears on edge. Thompson is the town of DeKalb's historian. He's researched the North Country's history for decades and won awards for his work. Thompson also taught courses for future elementary school history teachers at SUNY Potsdam. He says he knew teachers at the time didn't have a lot of resources about black history in New York State, let alone the North Country. I thought about it a lot, and I talked to some black friends of mine, and thinking maybe someone who is black should write this. And a friend of mine who was an English teacher, an African-American English teacher, at Sunni Potsdam said to me, if you don't write it, nobody else will. And so then I started. It took me 20 years of research to put this book together. That book is called African-Americans of St. Lawrence County. Thompson says the North Country's black history starts right when Europeans began to colonize the area. When Abby Francis Piquet came to found La Presentation in what's today Ogdensburg, he came with an enslaved man, Charles, and the community at La Presentation included a black woman who was a midwife, only listed in the birth and death records as the Negress, so we don't have a name for her. Thompson says before New York finally emancipated slaves in 1827, the wealthiest families in St. Lawrence County enslaved people in places like Waddington and Ogdensburg. It was a sign of social status. Thompson says after emancipation, the white people in the county wouldn't sell land to black people. That meant they had to move around to find work. Before the Civil War, relations between white and black people in St. Lawrence County varied from community to community. Thompson says there were a lot of interracial marriages and people could get along, but all of that changed after the Civil War. Jim Crow ideas of race and racism were brought, whereas before the Civil War, there were many ardent abolitionists and they talked about in the newspapers about the noble African After the Civil War, the N-word slang started to appear in huge numbers in the local papers, and the local papers ran serial stories, putting out all the stereotypes that we've heard of, racist stereotypes that didn't appear in the press before then. They'd run these fiction serial stories which showed African Americans to be ignorant, they could only speak in pidgin English or whatever, and that just was not the case before the war. Those things weren't talked about in that way. Thompson says many white people in the North Country didn't want to admit they were abolitionists. Abolitionists were blamed for the war, the high death toll, and the economic downturn that followed. So anti-black sentiment rose. Then the racist propaganda film The Birth of a Nation was shown in St. Lawrence County in the 1920s. The Madrid newspaper editor talking about how young people should go to see the movie to learn about the big mistake of trying to integrate black people into society and treat them as equal human beings. And Madrid was one of the centers of the abolitionist movement during the Civil War and after the Civil War, the Scottish Presbyterian Church raised large amounts of money and sent members to the South to teach in the freedom schools that that taught illiterate former slaves how to read and write and do math. 
And here a generation later, newspaper editors telling people we need to learn that that was a mistake and we should never have done that. The Ku Klux Klan rose in the North Country between the 1920s and 30s. Thompson says papers in faraway places like Chicago warned Black people about migrating to a place like Messina, where the Klan was terrorizing Black residents. Thompson says this was the peak of anti-Black racism in St. Lawrence County. And by the 1930s, almost all of the Black communities were gone. Thompson says putting together this history was hard. He would find a couple of sentences here and there. He says without census records, oftentimes there would be no record that someone existed. One of the stories I tell in the book is about the Fry family of Governor and Flora Fry was given a land grant by Garrett Smith when he was giving land to free black men, two from every county in the state so they could vote because there was a poll tax in New York for black people. And I wanted to find out why a woman got it, because she couldn't vote anyway for another 75 years uh, in New York. Um, And I had dug out incredible records, but a little piece here, a little piece there, all starting with Garrett Smith's records of her. Thompson's book often focuses on individuals and families to illustrate the Black community's experiences in a particular place and time. I think that's an important way to tell history because it makes it personal to us. There's got to be somebody in that book that you as a reader will relate to, whether it's Nanny and what she goes through in her travails with pregnancy, whether it's the Boston family raising multiple generations of, of their family in the Messina area and fighting in the Civil War, or... If it's George Swan being a successful businessman, there should be somebody there that you can relate to in the book, I hope. That was my goal. Thompson says the Black community's resilience is the most important takeaway of the book. He says this history has always been a part of the North Country, and it's important to acknowledge and learn about it. Catherine Wheeler, North Country Public Radio, in DeKalb. Thompson's book, African Americans of St. Lawrence County, is now available. Listening to Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio. I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandreski. Coming up in just a minute, Northern Lights Choir kicks off to the holiday season on Friday night in Saranac Lake. And we've got a preview. Then stick around after the show for Bird Note. We'll hear about the duet of the Great Horned Owl. But first, Todd has a look at the weather for us. Cloudy skies today and probably right through the weekend at this point with highs this afternoon, low 30s for much of the region, light winds out of the west-northwest, but gradually milder temperatures, highs tomorrow in the 20s, 30s again on Thursday, a high near 40 on Friday, mid-40s on Saturday, and a high in the upper 40s, low 50s on Sunday with about a 70% chance of rain on Sunday afternoon with winds out of the south-southeast. We've got clouds, 27 degrees in Canton right now.
Northern Lights Choir hosts its winter concert this Friday night at 7.30 at St. Bernard's Church in Saranac Lake. Under, under the direction of Helen DeMong, the community choir will present an evening of seasonal music with a message of community. A performance of choral pieces across the spectrum of time and genre. The concert will feature a variety of styles from traditional holiday music and songs of different cultures containing beautiful and powerful works to ring in the season. I spoke with Northern Lights Artistic Director Helen DeMung, who says this year marks the choir's 10th anniversary, too. We're pretty excited. The last 10 years has had a lot of ups and downs for community choirs across the country and and the world. And we have persevered, and uh, we're thrilled to host our live concert on Friday, December 8th. Many people who have come to this concert feel this is special and it is their traditional way of kicking off the holiday season. Well, and speaking of kicking things off, you're going to open the concert with a a piece for Hanukkah. Yes, this is a gorgeous piece of music called Hashi Venue. The first time this was heard by one of the choral directors, Uh, that was standing outside of a kibbutz. She heard this melody and found it very haunting. And so she followed it up, found out that it was a traditional Hebrew uh, piece, and then arranged it as a canon. And it seems to hold the audience in its hand as you hear this very evocative melody. You also, um, as you do in many concerts, have a theme or a message, and and this year it's going home. Yes. Home seems to be one of our frequent themes. We know that home has a different meaning for all of us. Mm -hmm. One of our very first songs is The Road Home, and that's a musical than yet it captures the love loss struggle hope and support that we encounter as we have our life journey the beginning and the end of the concert. 
you also, uh, within the concert, uh, as we mentioned, you start out with a Hebrew piece, and you've got music from Ireland, you've got Brahms, uh, you have the chorus dividing up into men's voices and, and women's a women's chorus. And we have a Scottish piece that the men will feature called The Parting Glass. It's a story of how when a guest is departing, the host will hand up a glass to nourish them before they go on their long journey. As always, we tend to do an eclectic concert. We'll have the seasonal favorites like John Rutter's Angel's Carol and Irving Berlin's Christmas Medley. But we'll also have some gems like Eric Whitaker's The Seal Lullaby. I'm so excited about is the high caliber of music that we're singing and how well it is embraced by all of our communities that come and listen to this concert. And tell me, uh, angels we have heard on high is this something that you program for every holiday concert and it's kind of a chance for everyone attending, the chorus and the audience, to, to sing together? Yes, absolutely. It is on our back page. And instead of just having the words, we have the printed music so that people can stretch their harmony skills. <laughs> and Northern Lights Choir starts off on Angels We Have Heard on High, the audience joins in, and it makes me realize we have a lot of talented musicians sitting in that audience. I would love to get my hands on. <laughs> <laughs> they join us, and we always start with Low How a Rose, and it sets a tone and an ambiance to our concert. And we always end with the sing-along, Angels We Have Heard on High. So that people feel a sense of, lo how arose, we're here again. We're back in this space with this choir. And then when we sing Angels We Have Heard on High, it brings us to this feeling we are all joined together. We're going to start our holiday season together. It's a wonderful tradition.
Helen DeMong is artistic director for the Northern Lights Choir. The choir is a multi-generational community choir that includes singers from Saranac Lake, Lake Placid, Keene Valley, Tupper Lake, as well as students from Paul Smith's College. Their winter concert is this Friday night, 7.30 at St. Bernard's Church in Saranac Lake. You're listening to Northern Light right here on North Country Public Radio. Just a couple minutes left in the show. But before we go, we want to let you know about a Northern Light event coming up this Saturday evening in Tupper Lake. You know astronomer Eileen O'Donohue from her conversations here on Northern Light. Well, now you can meet her in person with Todd and I for a star-filled evening at the observatory. This Saturday, Eileen and other astronomers from the Adirondack Sky Center will Take us on a tour of the night sky, preview the solar eclipse coming up, Give it, uh, guide us with telescopes, share stunning astrophotography, and lead us in constellation trivia. This outdoor event is free, but space is limited, so reserve your spot now at ncpr.org slash under the stars that's ncpr.org slash under the stars if the sky conditions aren't favorable for viewing the event will uh, be moved indoors to racket river brewing there in tupper but don't forget reserve your seat for ncpr under the stars this saturday evening at five o'clock at the adirondack sky center in tupper lake that's ncpr.org slash under the stars That's it for the show. Morning Edition continues in just a couple of minutes. Then join us later this morning for an important conversation on 1A, what OpenAI's board drama tells us about the future of artificial intelligence. That conversation coming up later this morning on 1A between 10 and noon right here on North Country Public Radio. If you miss an episode of the show, never fear. You can always listen back to the archive of Northern Light uh, episodes any place you get your podcasts. And while you're there, subscribe to our daily news roundup story of the day or our storytelling podcast, The Howl Podcast, any place you get your podcasts. This is Northern Light. I'm Monica Sandresky.